0: Welcome to our hen house. This is Jasmine Singer. And this is Marianne Sullivan. And this week we have a very special New Year's episode recorded live at a wildlife sanctuary. Matt Perry is, and I know that's a strange name right now, but it was this Matt's name first. Matt Perry is the conservation director and resident naturalist at Spring Farm Cares in Clinton, New York, and he's vegan. He's like one badass vegan. I love finding vegans who work in wildlife. And this kind vegan was kind enough to give us a personal tour of the sanctuary, which we are going to share with you. It's a different type of episode for us, and I think you're gonna love it. So stay tuned. I can't wait to hear it. Like, I,
1: I just want to revisit that day. Yeah, it was so special and such a beautiful place. And they have a lot of beavers there, none of whom were kind enough to come out for us. But he sent us a lot of pictures. I just love beavers. They're so beautiful and so sweet. And Oh, God, it was a great day. It was so beautiful there. Look, God, it's just, though they're surrounded by hunters, just to be in that safe space, with a vegan tour guide and people who get it just really really special.
0: We have been holding on to this episode because it was such a special one and we like to give you a super special present at the end of the year. So, I'd love to know what you think of this when you guys. So, anyhow, it is New Year's and uh wow, happy New Year's, Marianne. Are you like over the moon excited that 2023 is going to be in the past and 2024 is ahead of us?
1: Well, I don't know. I mean, we've had worse years than 2023. That's uh, true.
0: I, I, I'm i not I'm not counting on anything. That's a good way of looking at it. <laughs> I like the even numbers. Like the two is a good luck number for me. And so the fact that like 2024, it's like all divisible by twos, I'm just going to dork out and say that that feels good to me. And therefore, we're going to make it a great one.
1: Oh, okay. I'm not sure I'm going to rely on that, but I hope you're right.
0: Well, I hope I'm right, too. But I'd love to start that luck early. And here's why. It is. This is coming out on the 30th of December. And we are not quite at our goal for our fundraising campaign right now as as we record this. We're close. We're optimistic but we're not there. And I don't think people realize like how this is such a thing every year because the vast majority of people like to donate on the 31st, which is kind of hilarious to me. We're on the edge of our seats, just waiting to see if we will have enough money to unlock our $20,000 match. So if you are listening to this, we really hope that you consider supporting our henhouse by going to ourhenhouse.org support. If you have been a flock member for a while, thank you so much. And if you haven't switched over to our new donor relations platform, we hope that you'll go to ourhenhouse.org support and sign up there because Network for Good is no more. And therefore, we have a whole bunch of flock members who still haven't switched over. And, if, and you, if you switch over before
1: January 1st... It's matched. Yeah, it will be matched, which would be an enormous, enormous help to us.
0: Amazing. So I wanted to report on something, but let me just say thank you so much for all of you who are supporting our henhouses' efforts. Yes, yes.
1: Don't mean to sound desperate.
0: No, not... We're not desperate. I, I just wanted to say also, Marianne, that the, there's been some, like... You had an experience at, at, like, a get-together that you went to, and I want you to talk about that. But before you do let me just update people because this will provide the groundwork for this story about this get together you were at. So here in New York state, Governor Kathy Hochul just signed a super important law, S2163B in New York. And it is all about protecting horses from being sold for slaughter, which is a big win for horse lovers. And am I right that there was, there were already some horses that were protected?
1: The law already applied to thoroughbred and standardbred horses because it was right. applied to racing horses, and then it occurred to somebody, well, it's ridiculous. In the first place, why shouldn't all horses be protected? In the second place, you know, if a if the police officers are tr- stopping some some truck on the way to the border because horses aren't slaughtered in New York State or in the United States anywhere, they're shipped to m- most likely when you're in New York, they'd be shipped to Canada, and you know they don't know whether they are breads and standard breads or not. Yeah, they just made this sensible change, which will make it more thorough and more easily enforceable. And you know who who isn't thrilled finding out that that horse slaughter is is. Who, nobody wants to slaughter horses. Yeah, even people who do it, like don't talk about it. I'm sure,
0: like yeah. y- you would get your head handed to you. The journey and the end for these horses at slaughterhouses—it's just heartbreaking for anyone, vegan or not. And well, yeah, we everybody everybody knows that, and it's just it's it's terrible. Yeah. So great
1: news, yeah. And I got involved in this conversation. And, you know, I happened to mention it, and there were other there were animal people there, and and you know, some of them were aware of it. One person who I don't really know whether they're an animal person or not, just did the whole, oh my God, don't tell me, don't tell me, I don't want to hear it. Like, I just can't hear that one too much. We've all heard it whenever you talk about anything bad happening to animals. But what struck me here was that I was talking about something good that happened to animals. I mean, all right, like slaughter isn't fun, but isn't it nice that we're banning it? We're banning the transport of horses for slaughter? But I still got the, oh, my God, don't tell me, don't tell me, don't tell me. Seriously,
0: that's crazy to me that like, because this is
1: actually good news. It's totally good. Like, we can't even talk about our good news. Wow. Because it reminds people that there is bad news or something. And, you know, of course, it was on the basis of I care about animals so much that I can't even bear to hear about this. Wow. Yeah. It wasn't on don't tell me about it. I don't care about it. It was, don't tell me about it. It's too horrible to think about, which, you know, I think it might be the biggest problem that faces animals is that what happens to them is so awful that people aren't willing to even think about it. But what it started me thinking about Mm -hmm. was, and I think this is really true, you know, we get a lot of shit for not being fond of people and being anti-human and only caring about animals, which is not true, but you know... (laughs) We have our moments. And that's how people think about us, I think. And it occurred to me that we're the people who think that that change is possible. We're not the despairing people. We're the hopeful people. Or otherwise, we wouldn't do any of this. We would just sit in the corner and say, oh, don't tell me, don't tell me, because nothing can be done about it, so I don't want to know about it. And And I think that animal advocates are really the people who believe in other people more than anybody because we keep
0: trying. Right. We wouldn't we wouldn't bother. I love the fact that you just pivoted it that way. In fact, I'm totally confused (laughs) because I'm not used to you spinning things that way.
1: No. Well, it's New Year's. I'm trying to, you know, take a positive spin.
0: No, I I really believe this. I really do. I love it. I think thinking about the fact that we are actually very pro-human, it emboldens me. And, you know, there's been a lot of I was for something else I was working on this past week, not related to our hen house. I've been researching neuroplasticity and how there has been actual science in like very compelling science into how we can change the way we think. And not only was that really reassuring to me as an advocate, but just in terms of like looking at things in a more positive way, it can really change the way we experience the world. And it is very hard to do that when you know what's going on behind closed doors for animals. But the fact that you just took something that was so dumb, like that experience was just downright dumb and turned it into something positive. I, you know, I love that as, as millennials would say, I love that for you. (laughs) Yeah. Don't, don't say that. I won't say that ever again. I I do
1: think it's really important to remember how not everybody. I mean, I shouldn't pin everybody because most of the people there, I was having this conversation with several people and it was only one who was taking this. So it's certainly not everybody. And don't think it's everybody when you hear that, which you will hear because we hear it all the time. But like people would rather avoid the pain of knowing what is happening to animals than to stop actually participating in it. I mean, not that this person was participating in horse slaughter, but we all know that you know there's loads of animal abuse. That they don't want to hear about how pigs are slaughtered either, but they're perfectly happy to eat a pork
0: chop. Yeah, there's that cognitive dissonance again. And you know, we're the people who don't run away from the truth. Yeah, it's weird to hold the the truth of everything you're talking about, but there are a lot of people I I, I genuinely like and care about and respect. And oh yeah, me me too. Yeah, it's too. it's they're both true. Both of these things are true. But I'm not sitting around when I'm talking to these people. I'm not sitting around and like judging them in my head. I'm just having a conversation with them. I actually introduced myself the other day to someone when, like I I said, I was vegan. And I said, "Um, but I'm really nice or something like that.
1: And it's weird because did you say and not the mean kind?
0: Right. That's what I used to say. That's what I used to say back in the day when I was a vegetarian, like 20 something years ago, 25 years ago. I would say I'm a vegetarian, but not the mean kind. And I sometimes think that it's up to me to act not mean so that people know that I am just another goddamn person and not like. Oh, totally. You know what I I mean? mean, I
1: I think shame is one of the most powerful powerful emotions that people experience. And I think most people will do anything to avoid feeling shame. Like w- they will really twist themselves into knots. I don't think it's a motivator for most people. It is, right. it is a reason to walk away. So anything we should really, though it's really hard not to sometimes because people should be fucking ashamed of themselves. Oh my God. The That's truth. But, but, but we should never let the, well, nobody's listening to this. Well, if you are listening
0: to this, you should be ashamed of yourself. Oh my God, Marianne, please. For the love of God, um, don't say that.
1: We need to let people off the hook, even if it bugs us.
0: I'm horrified that you just
1: said that, honestly. I just really... Why? People should be ashamed if they eat animals. Of course they should be. I, I mean, I actually mean that. But I don't think it's... a. My point is that it's not a good thing to say to them. Okay. Because shame shuts people down.
0: And I have no interest in shaming people.
1: I'm sure there's things I should be ashamed
0: of. Yeah, and there's there's also, you know, so many vegans shame other vegans, and I just, I run away as fast as I can. Like It's I, just
1: not, by and large, except in a very unusual situation, it's not effective.
0: Agreed, agreed. Someone who is very effective in the work that he does is our guest today, Matt Perry. He is really... A different dude. He is not like anyone I've ever interviewed before, really. Matt Perry is the conservation director and resident naturalist at Spring Farm Cares in Clinton, New York. And we had such a wonderful time visiting with him. He's really a cool human being. Since 1999, he has overseen a rewilding project, which is converting 260 acres of former agricultural fields into biodiverse wildlife habitat.
1: Don't you just wish you could spend your life doing exactly that?
0: It's so, it's just so cool. In central New York, Matt is recognized as an authority on wild birds, their behavior and their habitat. He is the president and co-founder of the Utica Peregrine Falcon Project and a longtime board member of Beavers Wetlands and Wildlife, an organization dedicated to solving beaver-human conflicts. Matt has written hundreds of nature-themed articles for Mohawk Valley Living Magazine, and he is also, as I mentioned, an ethical vegan. And as he points out, vegan principles play a major role in all the ecological projects he's involved in. I can't wait. He will be joining us right after this. The Culture and Animals Foundation sponsors artists, scholars, and activists in our collective efforts to understand our fellow species more deeply and to further their rights. CAF provides annual grants, an arts prize, a lecture series, and a fellowship. Visit cultureandanimals.org for more information. That's cultureandanimals.org, the Culture and Animals Foundation. Think, create, explore, celebrate. Hey, everyone. Jasmine here to remind you that we're in the midst of our year-end fundraising season. If you enjoy our podcasts and believe in the change-making power of vegan indie media, please show your support with a tax-deductible donation to Our Hen House. The best part is, all contributions, modest or massive, made between now and December 31st will be matched, up to $25,000, but only if we make our goal. So go to ourhenhouse.org slash support to see our new membership options or to make a one-time donation. Or, brand new this year, you can text us to donate. Just text HENHOUSE to 53555. That's H-E-N-H-O-U-S-E, no space, to 53555. We appreciate you so much and couldn't do this without you. Thank you so much for making the world a kinder place, and we hope you enjoy the interview. Just for the sake of the interview, can you say your name and what you do here? (laughs)
2: I'm Matt Perry. I'm conservation director at Spring Farm Cares. I'm the resident naturalist and the sanctuary manager. I oversee habitat restoration projects on about 260 acres of former agricultural land.
0: Wow. So what's the sanctuary?
2: The sanctuary is yonder, and we're doing mostly reforestation, Mm -hmm. but we're also doing wildflower restoration as well, native wildflower restoration, and we have a colony of beavers that are in charge of our wetland restoration. And we've had the same colony for 24 years, and the current matriarch and patriarch of the colony are the grandchildren of the original two that came here to the property. You're
0: kidding! Wow! That
2: was Morton and Sarah that came in 1999, and now we have their grandchildren. Wow. The matriarch now is Tippy, who is 11 years old.
1: How long do beavers live?
2: In the wild, they say they live until they're about 10. Tippy's going on 12, so I'm hoping that she's going to well outstrip normal mortality for the species.
0: Randy and I were just discussing Tippy Hedren, because she was a big animal person. You know, Tippy Hedren from the birds? Right, right. So anytime anyone has someone named Tippy, I'm like, oh, (laughs) Tippy Hedren?
2: Well, his name because when she was a baby, she used to go like this, kind of oh, teeter, she- <laughs> when she swam. Aww. And so I started calling her Tippy Canoe. Uh, and that's, that's where so Tippy cute. came from. I, you know, I care some birdseed because I put birdseed on top of fence post for the birds. That nice. keeps them interested in hanging out where I hang out. Self-serving.
0: I know this is a hugely g- general question, gotcha. but what is the situation that the animals are in before they find themselves here.
2: It's a problem to find habitat. So that's what we try to provide for them because they have degraded habitat throughout the area. It's mostly farmland that's being used for growing-
1: Corn. Corn for for, for cows. For cows. Right, exactly. And pigs
2: yeah and silage and that's what the soy that they plant here is also for animal <laughs> soy, consumption corn
1: and soy, is so, all you see by the roadsides
2: essentially this whole area has been devoted most of the land probably 90% of the land around here is devoted to animal agriculture which is terrifying, really, if you think about it, because there's just almost no place for our wildlife to go. There's some woodlots, but woodlots constantly get picked over. They get logged, and the state environmental agency encourages landowners to log it, which degrades it as habitat. And so there's so many species that cannot live anywhere around here. And so what we're trying to do is produce a certain amount of contiguous forested habitat that will enable a lot of these species, which are mostly neotropical songbirds, Mm -hmm. which have to go all the way to Central and South America to spend the winter, Mm -hmm. to give them the habitat that they need to still be here in this region.
1: How many acres do you need in order to do something like that? You have 260, but what's the minimum?
2: I would say at least 200 to 300 acres. It's hard to do anything less than that. There's some adjacent land, which we don't control, that's beyond our border that we could count uh-huh. as some of that contiguous acreage. But if that gets destroyed, then we lose viability here. Is
1: it that. protected, or you're just no, it's running on
2: lock. land? And so far, you deal with whoever owns it. Yeah. Right now, there's people that care about it as habitat, yeah. but someday they'll sell. The people that owned it before had it savagely logged several times yeah. so that seriously degraded it as habitat
1: i just want to check in and make sure you said this was totally agricultural land or did you have some forest land but i also want to ask you let me ask you two questions okay. at once, even though that's really annoying like how much maintenance do you have to do
2: It depends. A lot of our plantings have to be protected because we love our deer, but our deer also overbrowse. So the overbrowsing inhibits the regeneration of forests. So we have to protect certain areas from the deer, at least partially. So it's funny because we're also protecting the deer from the hunters, and then we're protecting plants from the deer. Uh, That's tough. And the hunters around here, of course, also kill the predators because there's no rhyme or reason to what the state environmental agency mandates. So they allow them to to kill the coyotes. And deer hunters go out and they say that they're saving us from overpopulation of deer. But then anything that's capable of taking a deer, they will kill because they don't want the competition.
1: I actually follow this guy on Twitter. I've just found him. His name is owen dalton i think and he's in ireland in the bear mm-hmm. peninsula mm-hmm. and i found him just because that's where my folks are from so i yeah. was looking it up and he has rewilded his land oh, no. but he just you know there are deer there in ireland they're called sitka deer they're not native and he just hates them I and gets so, that yeah. mentality everything else he's doing i love speciesism. and and yeah. then when it comes to the deer. It's not just that he fences, but you do what you have to do, but he hates them.
2: Some people actively will kill them to to stop them from, they'll essentially step in and manage, which means kill, and they'll step in and be the apex predator that will right. take the deer out of the equation.
1: And they think of it just as them as being part of nature, but come on!
2: If you go out west, essentially all the ranchers, they have the government come in and kill the predators that come near. So, it's just yeah, ridiculous. does
1: Wildlife Services, as they call it, actually have a role here?
2: No, they're pretty much just out west. I'm sure they probably do have some kind
1: of... If you called them, they'd be happy to come and kill
2: somebody. But they're mostly... (laughs) Yeah, I know, right. Well, I just had somebody just a couple of days ago. I bought a farmhouse this year. I had to leave the place that I was renting. So I bought a farmhouse out in the country, and it's, like, adjacent to state land. And I was moving some stuff, and there was a son of this woman who was helping me do the move. And the coyotes started calling, you know, coyotes sing. And it's beautiful to hear. And I was like, oh, my God, listen to the coyotes singing. And the son said to me, oh, you have a coyote problem? Do you want me to come and take care of it? It's like, what? And I said, no, we love our coyotes. We absolutely need our coyotes. Of course I don't want you to do that. And he said, well, the farmers don't love them. I was like, what? the farmer's done for us lately, you know? Yeah,
1: coyotes are just the most extraordinary animal because they're the most persecuted animal, I think, on the planet, and And yet they never give it. They're living in Manhattan now.
2: They are brilliant animals. Persecution has made them expand throughout the entire country now. So they are now everywhere. So once they were just in the West, you know, Western part of the country, they're they're all over the place. Did you look into that book that I told you about, Coyote oh, yeah. America yeah, yeah. by Dan Flores? It is available on Audible too. I think you mentioned that That's you listen right. to books. Because I listen to books too. Goes through that. the amazing, I told you, it's a yeah. little bit about a people's history yeah. of the United States. Yes. But he goes into the entire history of people and coyotes. We He's not vegan. We have
1: we exceptions, have. wildlife, and to some extent companion animals. We don't require that people be vegan we because we wouldn't have any to
2: that's my electric bike. That's oh, cool. what I used to patrol the, the property with. Oh, I nice. used to use a gas powered ATV, which I hated myself for. That's how I
1: feel
0: about my car.
2: And, uh, and so now this thing is wonderful. Yeah, it's that's nice electric. Way. It's very sturdy and I really like it. It's a great way to go around.
0: I have the rad city bike. I love it.
2: This was all cow pasture in here. and it's starting to grow in by itself now.
1: I shouldn't have asked you two questions at once, but you didn't answer my first one. Was it all agricultural land? There were some woodlots.
2: Typically what would happen with the old farmland around these parts, they would always keep a woodlot for firewood. So even though originally if you came here in 1780, this was all old growth forest. But upstate New York was settled relatively late for Eastern State because the Oneida Nation continued to own it. But after the French and Indian War, and after the Revolutionary War, a European started to settle yeah. it. Before
1: that, originally, it was mostly all wooded, wasn't it? it
2: was almost all wooded, with yeah. the exception of areas that, that were blowdowns right. and beaver meadows. But the beavers were pretty much gone by the time this was settled early on because beavers were trapped out very early, unfortunately. Because that was the first major industry in, in the United States was the beaver fur trade. So they killed all of the beavers. And most of the other f- fur, Bearing animals, too, but they were very efficient killing the beavers because they wanted them so bad. But they also killed the cougars that lived here the black bear and the, the wolves, the eastern wolves. Mm-hmm. So they're all wiped out. we still out. have black bear, don't we? We still have and They are coming back. They're coming back. We had one come through. I don't a think few, we have cougars, though. I've never heard of ago. cougars. No, we don't, although they are starting to come in from the west into eastern states. Once in a while, one is hit by a car. That happened in Connecticut a few years ago. Connecticut? Yeah. They're mostly coming in from the Midwest. A lot of people claim they see these animals, but people say they see Bigfoot, too. That's true. But there's a lot of trailside plantings. They all look terrible this time of year. These are green-headed coneflowers. I planted, like, a break here with native white cedars Good. to kind of block the road, Route 12.
0: Did
2: you planted those? Yes. Wow. Well, I've been here a long time.
0: How long, how long did you say you were
2: here? I've been working here for 24 years. I started volunteering a few years before that. Oh, okay. But that was mostly just to feed birds and to patrol for hunters. We're entering the first reforestation field here, so these will be large trees someday. Oh, this cool. is a swamp white oak which is planted in a relatively wet area. And this is a burrow. Now these are all wonderful nut producers, acorn producers, which will someday provide a lot of food for wildlife. So a lot of the plantings we've done in here, we've done because they produce a lot of food. And what is missing from the other areas that probably look a lot like this from a distance when you're driving by, like a brushy area or an area with the young forest, they don't have the food. A lot of them are devoid Mm. of of food. So what we try to do is is make a a great diversity of different foods for wildlife. This is a Washington hawthorn here. It has these red berry-like thorn apples, which will be very good for birds that spend the winter here.
0: What kind of birds, would you say?
2: Uh, It's mostly cedar waxwings, American robins. Mm-hmm. People don't realize it, but a lot of robins do spend the winter up north.
1: I do not realize that because you don't see them. And then all of a sudden in the spring, they're like, hey.
2: But interestingly, the robins that spend the winter with us are not the ones that spend the summer with us. The robins that spend the winter with us are coming south from Canada. Oh. And our robins go south. <laughs> yeah, it's a changeover. It's seamless, so yeah. you don't realize, hey, that's not the same robin that nested here, and that's true with a lot of birds. Actually, they do this kind of does so he down? Almost all of them migrate somewhere. Yeah. Well, there's a but you'll have some that are permanent residents, like black-capped chickadees, downy woodpeckers. They're non-migratory, so they'll hold the okay. same territory all year. They might move a little bit, move to an area like here, we'll get a lot of guys in that nest in the surrounding neighborhoods because there's more food here. So they'll come here and spend the winter here. So they didn't migrate. They only moved over a few miles. So we'll end up with a few hundred chickadees that we see. Hmm. I'm not sure how many we have that we don't see. Wow. Oh, I forgot to point out the birch here, the river birch. I planted that guy too. That big one? Yeah, that big one. That big one? Yeah, it was just oh a little God. stick when I put them in there. So trees grow at all different rates. The reason why I'm
1: particularly loading that is because the The guy from the nursery recommended that I put a river birch in my teeny tiny backyard. I'm not it sure will that's grow a good
2: huge. Idea at all. A lot of people plant them as ornamentals. It's one of few native species that has been adopted as an ornamental. Uh, Yeah,
1: I didn't know what I wanted to do with my teeny tiny backyard, but I wanted something native, and they knew a little bit about native planting and talked about it, but they didn't have very in depth knowledge.
2: The pin oak here. Pin oaks are small oaks, relatively small. So it's in the red oak family, and they produce very small acorns. We've planted smaller things at the border of the field, so trees of smaller stature like this. This is a bayberry here. Bayberry has waxy, fat-rich berries, which are really good for wildlife. When they have to migrate, they will eat fat-rich berries to help fuel their journey south.
1: So do you have advice for people who don't have 260 acres, but who do have backyards, things they might do? Oh, sure.
2: Make- yeah, we have a horticulturalist who will even give people seeds and in some cases plants that they can plant out in their yards. Yeah, we encourage people to plant with natives because the native species are the ones that our native animals have a relationship with. They either have a relationship with it to use as nesting materials or to use as habitat or to use the food or the pollen or nectar. So yeah, we encourage people to use natives, even if they have a small area. And people like to have really tidy yards often. They don't like to have any wild area. You don't have to plant anything at all. If you just leave a section of your yard wild, then that would be food for caterpillars. and for totally
1: my idea of gardening.
2: Yeah. Sit there and watch it. Yeah, you don't have to do anything, really. You can just let things go. And a lot of natives will come in you know. Actually
1: one thing that happens with me though is a lot of quote unquote weeds come in non-natives that tend to be really strong and compete
2: the natives. Yeah.
1: It does require a little managing. Yeah.
2: Oh yeah, definitely. You could do but you could do it as much as you want, or you don't have to do any at all. You really could if you want to actively manage. You have to be careful of when you manage. I find that when the weather gets warm, people go out and attack their yard with all these implements. And th- that happens to be around the same time that birds are just starting to nest. Yeah. So you're cutting the branches that they might be nesting on. Then they'll wonder why they have eggs on the ground from a destroyed Robin's nest or something. I'm you have to be careful about... about what time of year you do your pruning and what time of year you do all of your more active gardening.
1: What about this time of year? I've been told that it's good to just leave everything because somebody will be able to find either insects or maybe small mammals will be able to find habitat. just in all the stuff you leave lying around rather than tidying it up before winter.
2: If you rake up an area, you're going to be raking up a lot of cocoons, including cocoons of of silk moths, which are like the luna moth and all these really really beautiful, huge moths that people seem to like. So you'll actually be destroying the habitat for them because they will have their cocoons. uh, They'll they'll overwinter in their cocoons underneath the leaf litter. And also salamanders, Mm -hmm. if you're in a wetland area, near a wetland area, You might have some salamanders or some other amphibians. But yeah, uh, you disturb it. And you also disturb caches of food that mice will take sometimes uh, an old bird's nest and fill it with seeds that they collect. That'll be their cash for the winter. They'll put a cap on it to weatherproof it. They'll build a little cap on top of the nest, and they'll access that through the winter. So if you go and decide you want to get all that jungle out of there, out of your yard, you'll destroy their- I love
1: this theory of gardening. Just don't do anything.
2: Yeah, but you can get away with that. I'd approve.
0: (laughs) So is this, this is a nonprofit? Yeah. And why was it originally founded?
2: Do you mean for this side of the road, for the nature sanctuary? Yeah. It was to provide habitat for wildlife. They always loved wildlife across the street. Actually, Bonnie, who's our executive director, it was her family that owned this. It was their dairy farm many years ago. Her grandfather, Francis Jones, had prize-winning dairy herd yeah but he made a lot of money and Mm -hmm. then he lost it all in the depression so he actually lost this side of the road bonnie my uh, boss she worked in hollywood in the 60s and 70s and uh, she was in a number of series that (laughs) had guest appearances on things like perry mason and mash she bought back this side of the road, so and she turned it into a nature sanctuary.
1: And had it been a dairy farm through all those it years? It been
2: a dairy farm after that, too, yes. Matter of fact, there was somebody that came for a tour a, a few weeks ago that said he worked here in the 50s and 60s when it was a dairy farm. Oh. So yeah, this, this was all cow mm-hmm. pasture in here. There were no trees. This, this was a field that they were still mowing when I first came here. Uh, this is witch hazel, by the way. Do you know what witch hazel no, is? No. People use yeah, it as an astringent. Oh yeah, I've heard of that. It flowers this time of year. It's one of t- few trees that flower this late in the season, but it's an understory Plant, so they don't grow into really oh. large trees, but they're shade tolerant. So they grow under the canopy the of beautiful, the forest.
1: Beautiful color.
2: So now, Yeah, it turns you know, golden. This was all field, as I said. This is the tulip tree here. We planted a number of tulip trees. The white oak over there. Oh, wow. This is a black cherry tree. The black cherry trees really p- produced a lot of cherries uh, this year. The chairs are very small and perfect for birds. You'll see a little fenced in areas in here. Those fenced in areas are experiment. We're trying to grow the forest understory at the same time we, we create a forest canopy instead of waiting until it's a fully fledged forest. We've brought soil grafts in from the old woods that are way at the back of the property. And within those soil grafts, you have perennial wildflowers, you have tree seedlings, you have fungal spores, you have bacteria. You have everything you need in the soil oh, that's so that cool. we want. we bring
1: to, the, the, yeah. the, the, so we're, the we're, soil and we, the yeah, soil to do and dump it here. We and, brought
2: grafts, literally squares yeah, of like, the like soil. And we put them in, we place so them in cool. here. We're we protecting them half protecting them from deer. Deer can still get in, but uh, I told you, we do have a problem with deer over browsing things. If you just make a little weak fence, that's enough to discourage them. So they will jump in and eat some of it, but they won't eat all of it. Mm -hmm. And they won't hit it every day, like they would if it was just in the open. So we've found a way to coexist with the browsing habits of deer without putting ridiculously tall fencing everywhere. Our fences are constantly falling over too. We have to always fix them. Sounds like it's raining a little bit. Is that okay with you guys? Yeah,
0: we're fine. We're not precious people, despite what
2: they say about us. Yes, you're very precious. (laughs) You're my only vegan.
0: (laughs) (laughs) When did your vegan story start?
2: 20 years ago, I became vegan, fully fledged vegan. I had been a vegetarian for 20 years before that. I, I stopped eating meat in 1983. January, 1983.
0: I've also been vegan for 20 years.
2: I regret that I didn't become a vegan earlier. Who,
0: yeah, who doesn't, right? Yeah, that's the only big regret most people have.
1: Yeah,
2: I and mean, it seems completely right? inexcusable. It's embarrassing to say that it took me that long to, like...
1: You mean to go from vegetarian to vegan or
0: to go from to go, to meat go eating from to-
2: vegetarian to vegan. <laughs> it's like, why didn't I do this earlier? Yeah. It was a little bit harder back then. It was harder.
0: Marianne has been vegan Vegan. since the mid-90s. Mid-90s, yeah. It was a little bit harder.
1: I lived near a health food store, so it wasn't really Uh that hard. No cheese. Other than that, (laughs) 10 years earlier than that, it was even harder.
2: This is a chestnut oak, by the way. Uh-huh. It's another species that produces valuable food for wildlife, mm-hmm. which you won't find in most of the woods right? around. All
1: of these are planted? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, And where do you get them from? Do you have to uh, go buy
2: them? Nurseries that deal with native stuff, but a lot of them are from the state nursery. That's one useful thing our state does. The DEC has the Saratoga Tree Nursery, which they raise uh, mostly native trees. Oh. And it's subsidized, too, so it's relatively inexpensive. So I get hundreds of trees from them That's every so year. That's so great. And, and it's really good when you do reforestation because you really have to plant hundreds and hundreds yeah. to ensure yeah. that five. Survive. Wow. Yeah. So it's it's very small. The stock we're getting. People think you're planting trees, so they think yeah. you're planting something yeah. that's tree size. No, we're planting the, things that are like this yeah. big, and sometimes that big. You so know, if you're lucky. So the chances of
1: them not making it are. Yeah, yeah. High. Yeah. yeah.
2: And we have to use tree protectors. You'll see some weird tree protectors yeah. around and different types of tree protectors over the years. This is another grass garden here, where we brought in soil from the backwoods. Oh, yeah, oh, this is a sad story. This is an American chestnut. You've probably heard of American chestnuts, yeah,, uh, they almost all died of the yeah, chestnut I didn't, I didn't chestnut know blight. You get some that are supposedly blight resistant, and I did get a bunch, and I planted some, and this was one, and it's got the chestnut blight a few years ago. Aww. I have a few that died already that were much bigger than this one, actually. They were producing nuts every year. I was very happy. And then they got the blight, and this is what the blight looks like. They got this kind of canker with these little orange mm-hmm. fungal flowers, if you will.
1: I don't think I've ever seen a chestnut. I've never seen these leaves yeah, before. very sad. The chestnut story is unbelievably tragic.
2: Yeah, there's a good book out there about the chestnut uh, blight. It's very fascinating I mean, used story to be everywhere. do
0: you know what it's called? Um, everywhere
2: i can't remember but i've got it in my library on my phone okay. i could look it up for you yeah. I'll, I'll we'll we'll talk about books yeah
0: that would be great
2: when we have our lunch break yeah, that'd be great. Oh, that's a yellow birch there too i forgot to point out i love those trees so we sometimes here? call them this this tree right here that, that has the peeling bark it's
1: beautiful bark y- it's almost silvery yeah
2: it's silver gold golden, yeah we sometimes call them beaver gold the beavers like them too.
0: Yeah, I want to hear about the beavers. Yeah. You're
2: going to see their pond. i like the going to show you their pond. <laughs> so unfortunately, the chestnuts died out at around 1900. That's when the blight really took. Sorry. And we never had chestnuts here, so I thought it would be safe to plant them here. Chestnuts are west in Syracuse, mm-hmm. and they're east in Albany, but they were not in this part of the Mohawk Valley. So I thought, oh, OK, I can plant chestnuts yeah. and we'll see how they do but unfortunately they're not blight resistant. Isn't there a hybrid? Yeah, for many years there was a hybrid between the Chinese and the American, and I tried it, but it seemed to have issues here. Uh, there's also the chinkapin, which is like an orchard-sized tree okay. version of the American chestnut, and they seem to be doing okay. I planted a lot of those. This is a black ash here. We're worried about our ash trees too because it's another family of species that are in trouble. There's an exotic insect called the emerald ash borer that's been killing ash trees throughout the whole section of the country. And it's just starting to reach here. Has not reached the nature sanctuary yet, but it's down the road a few miles in Clinton and -hmm. it's over the hill about a mile away that way. So we're living in fear. That's our modern age is that international trade has brought all these exotic diseases to our native forests. So we lose the American elm. We mentioned the American chestnut, mm-hmm. the American beech, too, which is a very important part of our forest, one of the most common trees we have. The hemlock, the eastern hemlock, which is the only evergreen tree that grows naturally in our forest around here. And we're going to lose just about all these guys. So what is the food and habitat going to be like for wildlife here? That's why we're planting such a diverse forest here with so many different species. So. If a disease hits us hard, we'll still have a forest. If a disease hits the standing forest, it's going to take out half of it. Wow. Because you're dealing with a forest that's only made up of seven species primarily and a forest here that's made up of 25 Mm -hmm. species. So you could see how a disease coming through effects that. It is terrifying. Do do
1: other places around the world have as big a problem, or is it because Asia and Europe are connected, so maybe there was always a little bit more exchange?
2: they do do have a problem, but you're right. It's not the same problem that we're having. I think we were isolated the same way that Native Americans weren't ready for our diseases and that it it killed a massive percentage of them. That's what's happening to our flora.
1: There's a the problem of when people do landscape, they deliberately bring in yeah. all the wrong plants.
2: Oh, yeah, I think the, the chestnut blight started from... Oh, God, it was like some botanical society or something brought in some exotic yeah. chestnuts, yeah. and that's where the disease started in New York City and spread and killed all the chestnut trees practically. Yeah,
1: we're talking billions and billions yeah. of trees
2: everywhere. And once they started dying, They did salvage logging and cut all the ones that even weren't dying.
1: Yeah, Yeah, because then you got farmland.
2: This reforestation is mostly white pine and red oak. And that's a a type of habitat that I'm hoping will uh, attract specific bird species. Uh, Also, below this reforestation, we left an area in meadow, which we planted with wildflowers. So there's a lot of different species of wildflowers in here. Because you have to maintain a little bit of meadow, too, for butterflies and for meadow-nesting birds and naturally in a forest you would have that would be created by fires and would be created by snow load you know snowstorms ice storms so you would have breaks mm-hmm. and historically too in this region we had passenger pigeons Passenger pigeons were all killed off deliberately in the 1800s, and that was once the most numerous bird in the world. There were just like flocks of over a billion would fly through. And they relied mostly on beech trees, beech nuts for their food, and they would breed in these areas. Since they were colonial nesters, Mm -hmm. they would have hundreds of nests in trees, and wherever they nested, they would actually create an area where all the trees trees would die, so there'd be a big strip of land that they might be miles long and maybe a mile wide or a half mile wide or something, and that area would become dead and become eventually like a meadow. And birds evolved to uh, use that edge habitat between the forest and the meadow, and also birds would nest nest in the meadow, different species. So it's a very complicated ecology developed here that we completely upended when we came here and prepared it for agriculture.
0: Well, speaking of agriculture, agriculture, pigeons were brought here by the Dutch as food animals. Yeah. That's why Yeah. there are like icon animals We have them tattooed. (sighs) Um, Just pigeons are seriously, to me, heroic. Yeah. Because they got out. They got out.
2: Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, pigeons are vilified by a lot of people, unfortunately. But our... Our non-native pigeons are essentially, uh, I consider them to be natives now. Oh, as much boy. as we are, I mean,
1: we consider they're
2: naturalized a- natives.
1: We're, we're not getting rid of us, so it's too Listen, bad. We
2: had native species of parrot, too, that people killed off, too. Really? Yeah, it was a car- called the Carolina parakeet. It was a parrot. It was the only North American parrot. And they killed all of them because they ate fruit. And so the farmers had to, of course, kill them all. Uh, They were gorgeous birds and wonderfully intelligent birds.
1: How do you deal with the whole fact that there are so few people in wildlife conservation who have a big picture about animals?
2: (sighs) It's a never-ending frustration because they will appreciate animal species, native animal species, but they don't really care about individual animals at all. It's like the experience of an individual animal is, is means nothing to them. That's how they can go ahead and and justify culling deer or culling barred owls in areas where spotted owls are supposed to nest, or cull blue-winged warblers in areas where golden-winged warblers are supposed to nest. It's, it's it's like they make these choices it's it doesn't make any sense to me
1: how do you deal with choices that are not that arbitrary or maybe they all are i don't know but are there a- areas in which <sighs> some non-native animals really are creating problems for native animals that- that... They
2: are creating problems. How do you deal with that? Sometimes you deal with it by just allowing more habitat to exist so they're not fighting over the same tiny space. We mentioned the bluebirds earlier today. And how do you deal with that? Do you kill the house sparrows that are using the bluebird boxes or do you put up more bluebird boxes? Seems to me, put up more boxes Mm -hmm. is the answer. For the most part, House sparrows only nest in boxes that are close to to, um, dwellings or close to some kind of farm or city buildings or something like that. If you have bluebird boxes right in the middle of a field that has no farm buildings around it, it's pretty much only going to be bluebirds that use it or tree swallows or species that conservationists tend to care about.
1: It just seems to me like... if if we actually forbid the use of lethal methods, we'd figure out a way to, to do this. It's just that we, we would, turn to
2: that first. We turn to it because it's the easy way to kill your way out of things. Yeah. Instead of using birth control too, for when they have a a problem with, with deer, they go to the kill right. method because it's easier to just right. hire somebody to shoot them. But it's ridiculous too, because a lot of the deer hunters are still using lead ammunition.
1: Wow. Yeah.
2: Yeah. They're using lead. And it's legal for them to do it. And what they do is they gut their deer after they kill it, they gut it, and they leave this pile of contaminated dog food essentially out for any scavenger to eat and poison. And I told you how I have a relationship with a number of different wildlife rehabilitators. And just about every bald eagle they get in that they test has lead in their system. And it's from that. It's because bald eagles will eat, that's a red squirrel calling. Bald eagles will scavenge, they'll eat carrion, and they get poisoned regularly. Yeah. Test their blood, and they have... And that's true with golden eagles, too, which are hard to come by, but they will get poisoned as well.
1: All right, onto the beavers. Yeah, all right.
2: Yeah, so we're very active in helping our beavers. We want them to stay here, so I've been bringing our beavers things for the past... 24 years (laughs) because otherwise beavers tend to eat all their favorite food and then they move on. So we've been trying to encourage them by doing plantings for the beavers and I also go to neighboring properties where I get permission to cut their poplar trees and I'll take the, the beavers' poplar trees. Oh, wow. And also I give them sweet potatoes and, and apples and carrots. That would carrots. be an
0: amazing knock at the door to get. Yeah,
2: I should, t- I, since we probably want Sierra Beavers, I should show you. I, I took a video of, uh, of Tippy and, uh, and I saw her yesterday. Can I some more now? Uh, I think the colony is pretty small right now because as they get older, they have fewer young. Yep. So actually an established colony tends to reproduce very slowly. Normally, if you have a colony, of beavers will produce about six kits a year. T- Tibby only produced three this year. Mm-hmm. One actually died, so she only has two babies this year. But they mm-hmm. retain their young for two years because okay. it takes a long time for beavers to figure out the world so and to learn all they need to yeah. know to be beavers and the two-year-olds disperse from the colony they don't get kicked out they just decide mm-hmm. it's time and to there's go
1: places for them to go around here <laughs> <They find laughs>
2: no place cool. safe really yeah. there's some places if they're lucky they can persist but there's no place like do, us do
1: people still really hate beavers
2: yeah yeah. yeah, but more people like them than used to. Yeah, I must say that it's like crows too. Crows yeah. in the old days, everybody hated crows. Yeah, except for me. And yeah, now yeah. there's quite a few people that like crows. <laughs> Members of the crow family are, are some of the most intelligent. Also, beavers
1: too. They're so impressive. They really uh, know what they're doing. They're they, they have goals. They they uh, modify baby, habitat. I just saw
2: her. This <gasps> was oh, from this morning.
0: She's so
2: she's cute. A, oh she's God. about seven years old, and I've known her for all that time. And she, she loves sweet potatoes. When I see her, I call her over and give she her looks a sweet potatoes. Just
0: like my 17 year old chihuahua. Her.
2: She's she a. Really I think she's girl. related to my
0: 17 year old chihuahua. She's
2: so cute. Anyway, I try to befriend them so they know to stay around here, so they don't go to the neighbor properties. because yeah. yeah. we have three months of deer hunting season around here. It starts with an archery season on October first, and it goes all the way through till a week before Christmas, and then they have a few bonus days. Now that that's after Christmas. You had
1: mentioned that with posting land, it's not just a matter of posting it; it's a matter of monitoring. it. Yeah, you have to so be. Do a you have to monitor your own?
2: Land. Yeah, yeah. I go around every morning. This is Tippy.
0: Oh my God!
2: She weighs about 70 pounds. Beavers get girl. very large. I'm so sad that
0: she's we're not going to really
2: meet her. Well, we'll go to the pond. Maybe Look somebody will come out early. I'll call him.
0: <gasps> oh my, my God! Sweetie. I love her.
2: She's a wonderful girl. Oh,
1: Marianne, I can't.
2: They're very gentle animals.
1: Really? Incredibly
2: gentle animals. Yeah, I'll show you her house.
1: How much habitat modification if they don't want to see there?
2: They have made probably twenty ponds since they've lived here. Not all of them are still ponds. Their ponds they will shift. silt up and they'll abandon it and that will then become incredibly rich area for plants.
1: I don't remember a lot, but I remember when I I interviewed that guy who wrote Eager. He was talking about Wait, habitat. Didn't I
0: <laughs> interview him. Oh, maybe oh, I interviewed a different Maybe I person. did the
1: questions. Maybe there was two beaver people. There might have been. Anyway, one of the things I remember, even though I don't remember who said it, was that in the West, if they hadn't killed off all the beavers, they would not have that any drought or they would have... Drought in the sense that rain didn't fall, but the habitat would survive and wouldn't dry out.
2: That now they've actually got beavers now that they like in the west, and they're not killing them. And the beavers are making oases Uh all over the place along their rivers. So they're doing a lot of work out west, and they're making fire breaks too. Which a a beaver pond is naturally a fire break. Of course, they need them out west. They needed beavers. And we needed beavers, too. And anyway, our beavers, uh, I I call it reparations, the the fact that we bring our beavers so many things and we treat them so well here. It's to make up for the centuries of turning them into hats. Uh, But people are still killing beavers, unfortunately. They come across people trapping them out of areas or they consider them a nuisance because they create flooding. But we're big proponents uh, of uh, using what are called water flow devices, Mm -hmm. beaver deceivers, There's ways you could protect the culvert and you can stop a beaver pond from getting so high that it floods a road or Uh floods a yard. And The beavers are fine with it. You put in these devices, they're very inexpensive and easy to install and then the beavers can live there and you'll Hmm. have the wonderful wildlife habitat they Mm -hmm. create, all the fish and herons and ducks, and you won't have the flooding issues. I think I told you I'm a board member for a group called Beavers Wetlands and Wildlife. Yes. And we're big proponents of water flow devices. Where
0: is that organization based?
2: It's based in Oppenheim. New York, which is close to Little Falls.
0: Oh, yeah, I just drove through Little Falls. It was so cute. Why do you think people become quote unquote beaver people, especially people who aren't otherwise awakened to animal issues.
2: Beavers are called a keystone species. So they're, they're popular in the same way that wolves are, because wolves are also considered a keystone species. Wherever they are, they change the ecology in such a major way that other animals are dependent on the work they do. So they are habitat creators. Mm-hmm. It's especially true with beavers, because they're so dramatic in what they do to change habitat. But what's interesting is out west, the story in Yellowstone, and when they reintroduced the wolves, not so much by killing the elk, but by worrying the elk so the elk didn't come out into the open and eat all of the seedling aspen trees. Mm-hmm. And that made habitat oh, for so beavers
1: it's not even just that they killed them right it's that they kept them away they worry
2: them so wow. so they wouldn't want to come out into the open and that allowed the beavers to proliferate there yeah. and that allowed the beavers to make yeah. ponds and to create duck habitat so and heron that, habitat that's fish habitat But i
1: just love this idea that the apex species the the wolves or the the predators operate in ways other than just killing everybody it's not they don't control populations just because they kill them
2: yeah and i think a lot of
1: i mean i just said uh, that but i just found it so interesting i said it again wolves are
2: also they eat other things too most canines they're not strict carnivores our coyotes i know they eat berries they apples they they eat a, a wide variety of food when it's available so that's another good reason to make sure you've got Habitat that's producing a wide range of fruits and nuts, as that provides these animals with more choices, easier things to, for them to forage on. Hmm. That's true with fishers, too. Fishers are big, mink like animals. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure if you know what a fisher I do is. Not. I don't think I've
1: heard that name, but hardly ever.
2: They're the weasel family. Their name is a misnomer, really, because they don't eat fish. As predators, they go after things like squirrels. But they're opportunists, like most predators, so they'll catch all other things. But they also eat grapes, and they eat nuts, and they eat berries. They'll, They'll eat a wide variety of things. They're not such strict. So why don't we go down to the beaver pond?
1: I could never in a million years find my way out <laughs> of We might make a home here.
2: You can make a home here.
0: It's a wildlife habitat for wild lesbians. we take you
2: down to the beaver pond now and then we'll have our snacks. Oh, that was now.
0: really so sweet of you. I like that you throw birdseed everywhere you go.
2: I throw birdseed everywhere I go. This is just a small bag that I'm going usually carry in my huge backpack. Which I, you'll see, because I left it down at the beaver pond. Oh, Here's one of our beaver pond. This is the main one. This is actually the beaver lodge. Wow. That's where Tippy lives. Oh, my God. Any beavers here?
0: Beavers! <laughs> Any
2: beavers? It's way too early for them to come out, but who knows. Tippy, Fuji?
0: Wow, that's really, truly remarkable. Isn't it
2: cool? So this was just a sleepy stream here. If you came here three and a half years ago this was just a stream. You didn't even see the stream really because there were a lot of a lot of goldenrods and asters and they came and uh, actually it was uh, Jean Lo the, the uh, patriarch he made the dam and he made he started this lodge and he tried to convince the rest of the family who is living on a creek that's on the other side of the field over there tried to convince them to move here and nobody wanted to go. So he (laughs) made the food cache They're like, I have to switch
0: schools.
2: (laughs) He made the food cache. And the food cache are essentially branches that they store in the water. It looks like a brush pile here in the water. Uh That's the beaver's food cache. That's what they'll feed on through the winter. So it goes all the way under the water. And they draw them under the ice because this will all freeze. So the beavers don't hibernate. They stay active. They come out of the lodge under the ice. You wouldn't be able to see them. And they come and they take a branch from their cache and then they go back into the lodge in the dead of winter. I Uh, feel
0: like I see someone, but I think it might be a bird, like right through,
2: like. Yeah, there's a lot of birds. There's also muskrats. Muskrats always live with beavers, so you're going to see little muskrats probably coming out of the side of the lodge. They live in the lodge with the beavers. Beaver lodges become like apartment buildings for other wildlife. (laughs) Voles will also live in beaver lodges. Voles. Voles are like mice. They're like mousy guys. They're beautiful. Voles are really cute. They look like mini beavers. unless They're like this big. Beavers. Come on, beavers. Why don't you come out early? I've got stuff for you.
0: It's me, Jasmine.
2: You have to meet Jasmine and Marianne. I
0: long way. I love beavers. Just ask anyone I know. <laughs> Sorry, I had to make the joke once. Oh, see? Is that a... Oh, it's just a bird. Not just a bird. Sorry. There's
2: usually a whole bunch of ducks here. I'm not really sure where my ducks are now. It's probably because I'm coming at a weird time. They're used to me coming at a certain time, because I put seed out for that for the ducks too.
0: Yeah, yeah, I saw him do, yeah. and
2: I just saw a cute little chipmunk. Oh yeah, yeah, I see him. You were right. There's uh, like a bunch of wood ducks all the way at the yeah. uh, but this dam goes all the way up there. That's, so That's all beaver down. That's all that beaver construction. It's really oh yeah, it's like cut all this wood. hundreds of tons it's of crazy. material, this mud is- and branches and stones. And they even put foundation stones at their. If you look, you're not able to because it's so brushy in there, but If you stand at the bottom of their dam, it's six feet tall. It's like immense structure. And it's very wide under the water line. You don't see it, but dams go like this. So you're just seeing the top of it. So there's all this material. And beavers don't just make a water impoundment by making a dam. They also dredge. So they dredge up mud and they put it against the dam. You see where the muddy edge of the yeah. dam yeah. and that's all fresh mud that they've dredged and they dredge channels to help facilitate moving their building materials and their food and as i was telling you they collect food from the fields and the woods and it's all tree branches they're complete vegans beavers and they store that and so i was telling you before the patriarch jen low a few years ago when he made this pond and this lodge He started the food cache here. There was no food cache in the pond where they were living. So those beavers that wouldn't move were facing going through a winter without any food. So they eventually had to move up here in time. I think they finally made the move. Tippy finally moved in with her husband in December. At the last possible minute, she moved to the new house. They will unless something happens, and Tippy's on her... Let's see. No, it's Jean Lau. Her mate is on his second wife. It's very... They're inbred. So it's complicated. It's actually Tippi and Jen Lowe were brother and sister.
0: Oh, next on Jerry Springer. Are, yeah. they, are they inbred because there's just so little habitat and they
2: don't... It's because they don't have a lot of communication with other beaver colonies. Yeah. Uh, occasionally one comes through and Tippy and Jen Lowe's father was actually a foreign beaver that came from someplace mm. else, someplace so unknown.
1: When the young ones move off, they might move to a colony where
2: they'll probably move it's possible but probably unlikely because beavers are actually fairly common nowadays they're not allowed to live most places because they get persecuted but they are around Mm -hmm. because just about everywhere i go i'll see some beaver sign i'll see like a, a chewed branch or i'll see like a partial dam constructed so they're pretty common now they're much more common than they were 20 years ago that's for sure there's a lot of movement in here probably muskrats
0: i might need a beaver tattoo and maybe you can choose one. Oh my I
2: god i know they'll come out actually if we back up a bit they'll probably come out. i'll put some seed out and then i'll attract them
0: this yeah this is amazing
2: it's a really nice peaceful place to be yeah.
1: social media has become such an important part of almost all of our lives so please make our hen house part of that social media experience for you you can like us on facebook you can Follow us on Twitter or Instagram. We try to post some news stories to help you keep up to date on what's happening in the world for animals. You can also find us online, of course, uh, on our website, ourhenhouse.org, or you can email us if you have some concerns or questions or something you'd like us to discuss on the podcast. Let us know. Info at ourhenhouse.org. Anxiety, surprising. So, guess what they're pushing now. I guess it's not that surprising. It's probably been going on for a while. I'm just really not that up on on what's new in milk, but this is from Horst Dairy Man, and the title of this article is past the Whole Milk." It's by one Amy Delisio. She's from the Dairy Council of California, and so this is their new thing. They want people to drink whole milk. Uh, I guess you know they finally realized that 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 the taste of skim milk or whatever they call it, two percent milk or whatever, just can't keep up with how delicious all of the plant-based substitutes are. So yeah, they want whole milk back. Get people addicted to that. She starts out, it's no secret that dairy milk has faced a slew of competitive beverages over recent years, many of them plant based. Yeah. Oh shit. (laughs) Yeah. Remember when you can hardly find you know, like you had to like go to the health food store to get soy milk? For dairy milk consumers, uh, she goes on, low-fat and fat-free varieties have long been a popular choice. But advancing research gives good reason for consumers to include full-fat dairy products in their healthy eating patterns. Can you imagine? They want people to go back not just to having dairy, but full-fat dairy. Oh, you know, and of course, they, they can get the science to support anything. If you ever read, read Michael Greger's books, <laughs> Like, it's unbelievable. There's science for everything, as long as you buy and pay for. the, The way they can manipulate those studies, I guess it's not so much in his books, it's more on his videos, that he really points out how the studies are so manipulated. Well, just look at this first one. One study found a diet with higher amounts of fruit, vegetables, legumes, nuts, fish, and whole fat dairy is associated with lower cardiovascular disease. Well, of course it is. Fruit, vegetables, legumes, nuts are the first four uh, items on there. Uh, Yeah, so apparently they're eliminating the meat. Yeah, I mean, of course, it would be much, much better and lower cardiovascular disease even more if they didn't include fish and whole fat dairy. But uh, uh, unbelievable. The science is just unbelievable. Like everything's unbelievable. Uh, All right, talk me down, talk me down. All right, it goes on to say emerging research, I bet, on the benefits of dairy foods, including full fat versions is especially relevant now. Yeah, because dairy is dying. Of course it is. As the food is medicine philosophy and resulting programs move into the mainstream, catching the attention, action, and dollars of the public health and healthcare communities, food policy advocates, and more. So they're going to start selling full fat milk as medicine. All right, well, you know, Maybe they'll just all die and, and we can start over with a whole new group of people because this is really bad for people, really, really bad for people. She also talks about how dairy can improve nutrition security and address health inequities. Uh, yeah, no, it can't. Eat plants, I, food security, like having all of these cows, how in the name of God is that secure? Like, isn't it more secure to have plants than 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 living beings who could, you know, get killed or whatever? So next is an article from Drovers. Title of this article is Prepare for a Changing Beef Industry. I would like to prepare for a disappearing beef industry myself. This is by John Nalivka. He's talking about COP twenty three. And the final report, and he quotes from it, quote, a pronounced focus on food, agriculture, and water and filling gaps to 2030 in the context of climate change. The transformation of food systems is crucial to fulfilling the Paris Agreement, unquote. All right, so he's concerned. He wants to make very clear, let me add that I am not a proponent of the UN. Just, you know, get his bona fides straight right from the start. However, I believe that quote is a prophetic statement for the direction of global food production. So, yeah, he doesn't like the UN, but he's worried about the UN and he's worried about the fact that they're starting to catch on, that the way we raise food is is a disaster. Particularly, of course, he's worried about what they're going to do about climate. They're not going to do enough, I can assure you, John, but, uh, you know, he's worried about what they will do. The most significant of the decisions to address climate change, he believes, is whether we will reduce cattle grazing on public land or reduce the use of energy production from fossil fuels. I, I think that he, he's talking about, you know, in the, in the food industry. Producing beef happens to rely on both. Well, you know, reducing cattle grazing on public land, <laughs> like, like, could we at least do that? Of course we can. So when I see statements concerning either of those, it is an immediate heads up. Of course, his head is not going up to say, oh my gosh, we're destroying the planet. His his head is going up, oh my gosh, we're going to be making less money. All right. So he he pointed, this is a confusing sentence, but I'm going to try to read it anyway. There have always been environmentalists who have advocated against grazing and the cattle industry, but the battle will likely intensify fourfold over the next several years as climate change and carbon emissions become the priority as opposed to just protecting the environment. Aren't climate change and carbon emissions like an environmental issue anyway? The way I would put this, there are a gazillion environmental problems caused by the cattle industry, but climate is so disastrous that that we're going to start worrying about that more than the other ones. The cattle industry, he says, has long fought the latter, which I believe he means... Protecting the environment—I <laughs> I, swear—that's what it seems to seems to refer to. The cattle industry has long fought the latter, but climate change will require a much more focused approach toward education and public relations, as the sentiment is strongly directed toward climate. All right. So, as we learn about climate change, his point seems to be we should do everything to keep the cattle industry protected from any kind of regulation for climate because you know, who cares about the planet? In turn, the regulatory burden will increase, which in turn will increase costs of production, or in many cases, take cattle production out of the picture. Now, wouldn't that be a joy? But the real problem is what he outlines in his last paragraph. The human diet requires protein, and beef is an excellent source of protein. What he doesn't point out, which is a bigger problem for him, is that there are lots of excellent sources of protein. And the human diet doesn't even require as much protein as a lot of people get. But even if it did, there are lots and lots and lots of excellent sources of protein. We don't have to eat cows. All right, he goes on to say, And this is the part that we really have to pay attention to. The beef industry and every cattle producer cannot be lax about telling their story. The beef industry and its contribution to food security is not easily understood by the average American, which makes it imperative to be open and to build strong public relations. Yeah, it really isn't easily understood by the average American. And he's absolutely right that it makes it imperative to build strong public relations for us as well. While I don't agree with most of the climate change agenda, What the hell does that mean? Sounds like he doesn't agree with any of it. I am not writing to rail against climate change. I guess he means against the climate change agenda. I don't know. What I am advocating for is the importance of defending a major U.S. agricultural industry producing an important source of protein for diets around the world. Yeah, bullshit. All right. Finally, from Horde's Dairyman, this is by Caitlin Allen. The world could impact the 2025 DGAs. What she's talking about are the dietary guidelines for Americans. They worry about them. They come about every five years. They're coming out again in 2020. 25, and they're already worrying. And the thing they're worrying about is that there are some countries around the world that have kind of awakened to some of the problems in uh, the foods that people eat. And she doesn't want America to catch up to that. It's basically what this article is about. And she points out that this is why, you know, you might wonder, Sometimes I, I have wondered this. Like, why are they worry so much about the dietary guidelines? Do you really know anybody who looks at the dietary guidelines in deciding what to buy or eat? You know, of course not. Like, maybe there are a few people. But as she points out, most importantly, standard for the items provided in government feeding programs, including school meals and food assistance programs like women, infants, and children, and the supplemental nutrition assistant program, do pay attention to the guidelines. And according to her, that's what makes it critical for dairy to be emphasized in the dietary guidelines for Americans. Because we wouldn't want children in schools or people who need food assistance to stop eating dairy foods because, I don't know, we're trying to kill them? I don't know. We're not talking about nothing here. She points out in 2022, 15.6 billion pounds of dairy went through feeding programs. 15.6 15.6 billion pounds. That's a lot. So they're they're working on the, the updates for 2025. And interestingly, this is the first time she says that the panel will evaluate dietary guidelines in other countries when deciding how to shape U.S. food policy. That must be worrying them because, of course, there are a lot of countries that are much more progressive than this one when it comes to food. And they've looked at 106 countries, well, in the UK, the people in the UK who were speaking here had looked at 106 countries and they all include dairy in their guidelines to some degree, which is horrifying. But the degree is important. More than half of the countries they've looked at recommend somewhere between 0.5 and three servings of dairy per day. That is a big difference from one half a serving to three servings. They're not all specific. They don't all include dairy in their key nutrition messages. Some highlight that dairy is a food to limit in the diet. The Nordic nutrition recommendations, which um, set standards for Denmark, Finland, Iceland, Norway, Sweden, and Greenland, recommend dairy every day. And of course, these are countries in which dairy has been traditionally very important, but only at a rate of 350 to 500 milliliters. That amount would provide roughly 450 milligrams of calcium, which is just really not enough for teenagers who need over 1,000 milligrams of calcium each day, as if they can't get calcium any other way. Drives me crazy. You th- Like, there are loads of foods that have calcium in them. All right, she also looks at Mexico, which is interesting. Because a lot of food-related diseases in Mexico, the people doing the guidelines were concerned with obesity, hypertension, diabetes. And as a result, they recommend more plant-based foods and less red meat. Dairy does remain on the healthy plate image, which is really unfortunate because the amount of cheese they eat in Mexico is really, really high. And it's part of the animal-sourced food group. It's not like dairy has its own place on the plate, which has always been so completely insane. But there are no details on the number of recommended servings and the guidelines tell Mexicans to avoid consuming animal products every day, which is really remarkable and really good news. We need that. So they're saying they need to continue to invest in research. And we've already talked about like, what their research is like. As long as you can find some some way to design a uh, study to prop up what you already want to say, that would count as research. It goes on to say, there is no promise that new U.S. dietary guidelines will follow those of other countries and limit dairy, but taking those standards into account may shift the discussion in a way it hasn't before. So, you know, every five years, we do talk about this and talk about how it's an opportunity and and it is. And, you know, they never seem to do the right thing, but they've gotten closer. And when you think of the, the stakes here, so to speak, they really are high. And that's it for this week's Rising Anxieties.
0: Well, that's it for this week's show. If you enjoy the podcast, we're asking for your support as we kick off our end of year fundraising. We understand that not everyone is in a position to contribute financially. And of course I love you all no matter what, but we have had a rather challenging year. So if you are able, we could really use your help. And this is the perfect time to make a donation because between now and December 31st, all contributions will be matched dollar for dollar up to $25,000 if we make it to the 25,000. And so listen to me, we have so many exciting announcements. We have revamped our membership options. We would be totally honored if you would join our Flock Friends community starting at $10 a month or $100 a year. So visit ourhenhouse.org support to check out our new tiered membership levels with really great names, by the way. You can be a part of our Chick Click, our Squawk Squad, our Henhouse Heroes, or of course our Bonyard Benefactors. Some of the perks include weekly bonus content, access to our engaging flock exclusive spaces in our online community, and get this. Monthly invitations to join Marianne and me live in the audience for a virtual recording of an Our Hen House podcast interview where you can meet the guest and ask questions for the bonus segment. And listen also, since we're a 501c3 nonprofit organization, your donation is fully tax deductible to the full extent of the law. So if you appreciate our head house, and if you believe in our mission to mainstream the movement, to end the exploitation of animals, and if you find community and solace in our shows and resources, and if you believe in the change-making power of independent media, Please make a donation before December 31st and your donation will be matched. Contributions of any amount are greatly appreciated and tax deductible to the full extent of the law. To support us today, visit our slash support. That's ourhenhouse.org slash support. Another great way to support us is to give us five stars on Spotify or leave a fabulous review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also follow us and leave reviews where you are able to on social media. Just find us at Our Hen House. And if you're one of the listeners who already supports us, thank you so much. And thank you to my co-host Marianne Sullivan, to Vicki Beachler for her work in producing this podcast, to composer Michael Heron for the music, thanks to Eric Montgomery of the Podcast Haven for his work editing this podcast to our production assistant Jocelyn Martinez and to Veronica Walenska who designed our amazing logos and other graphics. We'll be back next week with a brand new show, so don't forget to subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcatcher. Thank you so, so much for your support, your compassion, and for your dedication to animals. We'll talk to you again next week. Bye!